Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Given that this is the 39th episode of Historically Thinking, I thought it was just about time that we actually talk about what it means to think historically. And to do that, we're going to have to define a difficult word, history. With me to discuss what history means and what it does not mean is my colleague Lendl Calder, professor of history here at Augustana College. He's the author of articles too numerous to mention on the scholarship of teaching learn, and learning of history. And, but most importantly, he's the co-author of a forthcoming volume, maybe in two or three or just a few years, called The Uncovering the Story of American History, uh, of which I am the co-author, I, I have to say, somewhat modestly. So, Lendl, um, Good to be with you, Al. Yeah, well, good and to I, be have with I you. really written innumerable articles? Well, I didn't want to count them, so that's innumerable All for right. me. All right, um, you're always writing something uh, about it, so I, I figured that was that was good enough. You know, um, let's talk about your favorite. What, a, a quote that you often uh, um, you often like to uh, use is from Muriel Rukeyser, uh, American mm-hmm. poet. The universe is made of stories not of Adams. Um, yesterday, I asked my undergraduates what that meant to them. What'd they say? Um, well, I want to hear what you said first, what, what you would say first. Well, we don't understand anything until we tell a story about it. I mean, there are other ways of understanding the world, obviously, but in the final analysis, we don't have understanding about something until we tell a story. Even the atom is a story. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a picture of the atom in our heads, but for crying out loud, that's not what the atom really looks like. That's a pictorial story about the atom. Mm-hmm. So uh, we understand who we are and uh, what we are to do by the stories that we live inside of. Yeah, that is they uh, they had the, they got on the idea. Many of them uh, described exactly that idea of <laughs> the uh, sort of. In fact, one of them brought up the interlacing stories that make up the world. Um, they had this idea of the sort of cascade of stories, but they're also then woven together. It was very beautiful. I wish I could have been there. Yeah, to hear were, that conversation. That was a very. It was a very good conversation because I, I tend to find that young people are are story challenged. Really, when they come to college, they don't have access to very many big stories that give meaning to life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, that doesn't mean there isn't a story in their head. It just means they probably are living inside the default story for our time, right. which is the consumer story. Mm-hmm. And the consumer story is? Let's have fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who dies with the most toys wins. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The purpose of life is to have fun, be happy, and um, work hard, play hard. A psychiatrist I admire um, says, we tell are stories of the past, and they become our future. What do you think of that? Well, that's what I mean when I say that stories are how we know what to do. Mm-hmm. The story that is inside your head that uh, defines the world and everything in it is a story that tells you how to be and 
what what your objectives are, um, who the enemies are to look out for, what what obstacles need to be overcome. So mm-hmm. without a story like that, you don't really have operating instructions and you just end up sort of stumbling through life. Maybe this is one reason why there's so much um, depression in modern and late modern societies as compared to traditional ones. Mm-hmm. People don't have a... Uh, a big narrative to make sense of things. So that's the the bigger narrative, of course. And we tell stories about what's ha- things that have happened to us, which then condition our future. Right. Well, I like what your students said. Yeah. We, we live inside overlapping and yeah. interlocking stories, little stories that make sense of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, bigger stories that make sense of our life as we uh, as we know it, and then mm-hmm. big, big meta stories mm-hmm. like the Marxist story or the mm-hmm. the Christian and Jewish and uh, Islamic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What um, stories don't always contradict. Um, stories aren't always false. But um, how do we determine, um, and this is going a little bit off, off topic, our pro- program here, but how do we, how can we begin to determine the falsehood or the validity of a story? That's the t- that's your you would say that's the task of history. I would say that's the task of disciplinary thinking in general. And so historians have developed one set of tools, but ours are different from those developed by natural scientists or mm-hmm. theologians, for example. We're all finally blind men trying to feel our way around a big elephant, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, historians have hold of one strand of the human experience, you know, the past, and mm-hmm. as it bleeds into the present. And we've developed tools for. Um, distinguishing between stories that uh, are plausible and, and sto- stories or accounts that uh, are implausible, according to our community of opinion. What do you mean, community of opinion? Well, um, you know, truth, falsehood, beauty, ugliness, plausibility, and implausibility. These are categories that are constructed by communities. Okay. So, how do communities co- construct these? The uh, the historical community has one set of tools for that, and that's probably very different from um, sort of uh, average person on the street who hasn't had historical training. For for somebody like that, they might agree with uh, Rush Limbaugh, who says history is what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a list of things that happened. It's a set of officially sanctioned stories, and there's there can't be any debate about that. It it just is. Isn't that what uh, Leopold von Ranke also said? No, supposedly. No, I think von Ranke's generation of historians had some hope that we might work our way toward that kind of objective view of the past mm-hmm. um, with the application of proper discipline but as we know now that hope proved to be unfa- uh, impossible well for most people don't uh, i think lots of people um not just listeners to rush limbaugh don't quite understand why that's the case so you're saying that that completely that history cannot be us just saying about what happened why right and this is not a difficult truth at all to, to anyone who's been in a uh a son or daughter to parents <laughs> or anybody who's been married or in a relationship, you know, there's always your story and the other, the other side of stories. Yeah. There's always two different accounts of what happened when you get into a scrape mm-hmm. and historians begin with that sort of obvious truth mm-hmm. and begin to work out, uh, tools or, you know, the fancy term is heuristics, mm-hmm. problem solving skills or for, for working out what, what, 
is plausibly true and what's not. Today in um, this second day, I know you watch Do the Right Thing, uh, the movie Do the Right Thing, and look at a certain, at the, at the sort of the riot at the yeah, end. Yeah, I have the... students watch a, a 20 minute long scene mm -hmm. that happens near the end of that wonderful movie. And in the scene, um, um, it, the scene takes place uh, in the Bed-Stuy uh, neighborhood of um, Brooklyn. There's an Italian uh, pizzeria there. You know, the, the neighborhood once upon a time was all Italian, but there's only one Italian guy left. He runs a pizza shop. And in this scene, uh, local residents in the neighborhood uh, possibly attempt to kill the pizza owner and his sons, and then they uh, break into the pizzeria and trash it. <laughs> and it's a chaotic, confusing series of events, but all of my students can watch it, mm -hmm. and then I have them go write a story to to tell what happened. Mm -hmm. And if you know, I have 25 students in a class, you're going to get 25 different mm -hmm. accounts. You know, some of them have some basic agreements, but mostly not. They can't agree on when it happened. Hmm. They don't agree on where it happened mm -hmm. because the clues are ambiguous. But the only thing we can agree on usually is who the principal actors were. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to harder questions of why this thing happened or even what to call the thing, is mm -hmm. it a riot mm -hmm. or is it a rebellion? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we argue long and hard about that when we share our stories. So mm -hmm. the point of that exercise is to dispute but some people say that, you know, that history is a set of authoritative facts or that history is the story of what happened. Like there could only be one story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we um, I did. I do a variation on that because I'm trying to find out something different than what you do um, just to keep myself uh, interested. I, I, we did the uh, famous defensive play by Eagles Chuck Bednarik against Frank Gifford, um, <laughs> which I realized—not <laughs> that I'm an Eagles fan or anything—but uh, that I realized uh, reading the obituaries of both Bednarik and Gifford that every single one was different. Oh, and that's fantastic! Every one, uh, and here's it, it, there's actually a film of it, and I, I just tell them go out, I show them a picture, and then say go find out about this, and most of just about with the exception of two out of twenty. Uh, 28 out of 30 basically saw a film, but realized that even despite a film, mm -hmm. every obituarist, every sports reporter sees something different. Mm -hmm. So then as I say to them, what do you think we're going to do with the Boston Tea Party? Mm -hmm. uh, that happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Or the Boston Massacre, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, anything. Anything, anything, yeah. And yet this, this notion that um, history is the story of the past is, is a hard notion to, to kill. I... I was surprised the other day to learn that in the state of Florida, it is a state law still on the books since since 2012 when it was enacted hmm. that high school teachers cannot teach students history as an interpreted account. Huh. They are restricted, to the, according to the law, to teaching the facts of what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, now, I assume history teachers all over the state just ignore that because mm. that's that's an impossible view to, to act out, really. So you're saying there are no facts, there's just interpretations. <laughs> of course not. I'm not yeah, saying that. you're not that. saying that. So, I mean, we we could leave, stop here and leave everyone thinking that we're, well, here's what we're, I'm we're saying. engaging in some sort of deep, but basically everything is a fiction of the past. What I'm saying is history as a, as a, as a kind of knowledge mm -hmm. is very, very different from some other forms of knowledge, such as mathematics in which it is possible to prove something. 
um, mathematics, I suppose chemistry, and, and maybe one or two other disciplines operate with a form of knowledge that's quite definite and leads to widely um, accepted conclusions, which are not in debate. <clears throat> history is not like that. It's, in, in, in history, we have a very fuzzy kind of knowledge because evidence is, for the most part, elusive to us. Or it has to be interpreted uh, using the discipline of history, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, we are almost always disagreeing. Now, that isn't to say we can't agree on some things. So right. when my students do the Spike Lee exercise, we do finally agree, all 25 of us, that that thing happened in 1989. <laughs> There's plenty of evidence, yeah. to, and nobody doubts it after we work it through. Uh-huh. And they all agree um, where it happened. In the Bedstein neighborhood of Brooklyn, because they don't they don't notice it usually, but there's plenty of evidence if you look hard enough to establish that beyond mm-hmm. doubt. But we will never agree why a certain character named Mookie throws a trash can through the plate glass window of that pizza shop. Mm-hmm. Was he trying to save the lives of the of the white owner and his sons, or was he trying to start a, a some kind of riot? Mm-hmm. We disagree because we lack access to Mookie's mind. Mm-hmm. To, to, to sort of tell us what his motivation was, mm-hmm. if he himself even knew. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, you and I both, well, I stole this from you, but we use this uh, quote in um, class all the time. History is the story of the past. Historians gather the facts and ideas that were going on during important periods of our past and write it down so the future generations can learn about it. Yeah, well, who said that quote, Al? That was a student, wasn't it? That's right. An, I used an, to an ask, exam response. I used to ask students in the first day of class to tell me in writing what they thought history was, and that's uh, one of the responses. And yeah. it was a very typical response. It's Maybe well written. Sixty to seventy-five percent of students would say something, something along like those that, lines. Yeah. The key words being history is the story of the past, mm-hmm. uh, and the other key idea there is that it's pretty easy to make that story. You just gather up facts mm-hmm. like they were, you know, flowers in a field, and you put them into an artful bouquet mm-hmm. a, sto- a nice story um so the, so just instead we're saying that history is a conversation so describe that idea of the of the room of conversation i, I do like that one well there's this wonderful uh, metaphor um f- that most uh, most people in literature are familiar with that um you know all the world is a great conversation it's constantly going on it's been going on since the history of the world and as we become sentient adults and come to our own we we gradually begin to enter into the conversation mm-hmm. and we enter into it every time we pick up a book to read or talk politics with a friend or mm-hmm. read a newspaper or take a history class mm-hmm. and um, in history um, the conversation is driven by articles and, and books and widely accepted conventional understandings and you know, we bring students into this conversation in our courses, right? Mm-hmm. And then we want to equip them to actually be in the conversation, to not just be silently listening from the sidelines, but to engage it and to push back and to contribute to the conversation by questioning the conventional wisdom, for example. Like right now, I'm teaching a course on the 1960s, and we spend the first two weeks of the course mapping out what we call the beta story of the 60s that pretty much everybody knows. So what is that? 
Oh, I, you know, I, if I were going to summarize it in three, three sentences, it would be the 60s started out wonderfully with John F. Kennedy, and then the Civil Rights Movement blew up into black power in the mid-60s, and Kennedy was shot, and King was shot, and the other Kennedy was shot, and it all went to hell. And then in the Vietnam. 70s, everybody kind of took a step back, got a deep breath, and became stockbrokers in Wall Street. Right. So the shortened version of that is good 60s, bad 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. And we spend the second eight weeks of the course finding out everything that's left out of that story mm-hmm. and, and writing a better account. Mm-hmm. That's what historians do is we write accounts. We make sense of the world through accounts or stories mm-hmm. that we that we tell about it. And um, there's always going to be more than one plausible account and an infinity of really implausible or even stupid mm-hmm. accounts that couldn't possibly be true. And the job of being a history teacher is to train students to recognize the difference between those two categories, mm-hmm. the plausible and the implausible. The uh, the few uh, but valid or plausible accounts and the many implausible to silly accounts. Yeah. 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 So I saw, you know, a student will come into class usually with a really dumb understanding of the past that just couldn't be possibly true. Oh. Um, it's not always necessary for them to sort of give that story up. Mm-hmm. I'm happy sometimes if they can just work it up into a more sophisticated account that could plausibly be true and that, you know, intelligent people do do believe in and, and use to make sense of the world. Um, I'm not definitely not there to sort of inculcate everybody into my single right. understanding of the past. It, we, um, we talk about uh, historical thinking, um, and you... Um, well, Sam Weinberg, I believe, was the first to introduce. Is he's one of the first to introduce this cognitive skills, historical cognitive skills? Sam was the first psychologist to study how historians think and and, and to study that empirically. Okay, obviously, philosophers and historians have been thinking about right. that for over a hundred years, but nobody had ever thought to study it empirically. So I, I should say before that, among the philosophers would be R.G. Collingwood. Sure. And there's that uh, quote he makes about that the historian is like the woodsman and the traveler. And the woodsman yeah, says... Yeah, I love that quote. That's a great quote. Yeah. Yeah, of course, I stole that one from you, too. The, woods, <laughs> the woodsman says there's a tiger in the grass. Uh, and just the way that, uh, you, you know, it, it... The traveler looks at a clearing yeah. and says, oh, look at the sunlight dappling the grass. And yeah. the, the woodsman says, look. There's a tiger in the grass. And that, and these point out to the ways that country people can see things that city people cannot. Their eyes have been trained to right. see things. So uh, historians are people who have a discerning eye mm-hmm. for detecting the hidden element in a situation um, that other people might miss. Yeah. And what I love about teaching history like this as an intellectual discipline, it really helps to have athletes in class, I find. Um, because, well, why do you say that? Because I, I they, think I know where you're going, you know, but well, because me. I, it can teach say, Hey, this is like football. This is like lacrosse. Oh, it's a, it's a set of competencies it's a set that of you competencies can develop. That yeah. you develop, that yeah. you train. Yeah. Okay. This is what we're doing. This is, yeah. these are our stairs. They're used to discipline. They're used to it. Uh-huh. And they're used to thinking in that way, yeah. picking up habits, getting better at them, you know, never, not even if you're not a natural athletic, you know, genius or prodigy yeah. being able to get do, better. Do, at do you ever have problem with young students who don't want to believe that some stories are better than others? Yeah, sure. Yeah. How do you grade their papers? 
uh, with difficult. If they don't believe <laughs> that some accounts are better than others. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, if, if you mean like a, when you're dealing with a 19-year-old uh-huh. uh, full-on yeah. uh, relativist, relativist. Yeah. I mean, someone like Thrasymachus in the Republic, it's all uh-huh. about power. I mean, it's really hard when a 19-year-old believes it's just simply about power. It's just simply about who writes history and everything is a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you end, I mean, I don't know what you've done, but I've engaged in like, you know, two to three minute epistemology arguments <laughs> in class. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, I do that uh, too. I have some exercises designed to sort of... Um, uh, uh, these are at reductio ad absurdum like type what? exercises. What, 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 I'll what, say, so you believe every story is equally true? Yeah, I think so. It's whatever I want to believe. Mm-hmm. I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to ask you to step out into the street and close your eyes. Right. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. And But much of this just is a developmental process, and, and uh, we can provide exercises and arguments, mm-hmm. but uh, ultimately it... it takes some time for the cognitive hardwiring to reorient yeah, itself if it ever does yeah it will yeah well i mean there are plenty of you know 58 year olds yeah. who uh if you want to believe the world trade center was down by thermite bombs um well dr johnson says somewhere in boswell's life of johnson you know come it's relatively easy to prove that we have not taken quebec um and i can you know i can resist that i can resist the the news that we have you know taken quebec in all sorts of ways and he proceeds to you know, that go through that exercise. Um, it's awfully easy to, that's probably the easiest thing to do in, in many ways mm-hmm. is to deny something. Uh, the moon landing was faked. It's mm-hmm. impossible to get mm-hmm. around that one. Ultimately, I think. Yeah. We should probably do more than we already do to address conspiratorial thinking. We should do a conspiracy. Uh, given uh, conspiracy that it's in the yeah, world. We should and, do a conspiracy history course, in, but in I, gen ed courses we should. Yeah. But I would probably be driven crazy by that. I know some people have tried that. Um, but it would be, uh, well, that's an interesting idea. I'd like to think more right. about that. Um, we should we should do, in fact, that we need to do a podcast on conspiracy history and conspiracy conspiracy theories. Given given that that and the other thing we need is is uh, training in analogy mm-hmm. because that's the other sort of way that most people think historically, whether they're trained or not, is by making analogies to the past. And you know, everybody does that poorly. So why aren't we teaching college students a rigorous, disciplined way to do it? That's a really good idea. That's that's. Um, Wow. This is not a podcast. This is just, this is thinking aloud. <laughs> um, let's get, I, we had mentioned Sam Weinberg. He, he came up with these cognitive skills. What are these cognitive skills? Uh, the first one of them I usually teach is sourcing. Um, right. Well, it's not just Sam. There's dozens of cognitive psychologists now who've been studying historians. And, <laughs> you know, there's this cool little book. Well, it's not little. It's a gigantic volume called the International Encyclopedia of Expertise. Expert knowledge. International, yeah, we will link to the that International in the show notes. Encyclopedia of Expert Knowledge. It has a chapter on history. Mm-hmm. And the uh, co authors, who are two cognitive psychologists, summarize the existing research on how historians think. Wow. Yeah, it's a very interesting chapter. And they um, identify what they call CHEs, um, Characteristics of History Experts. <laughs> CHEs. <laughs> And I, you know, this is another idea that I haven't brought into class yet, but I think we should. I mean, there's something cool about that. You know, as a department, we could define what we think Mm -hmm. are the 10 or 12 or whatever CHEs and Mm -hmm. teach our students to use that language so that they know when they graduate, they're going to be able to do 10 things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's 10, according to the co-authors of this article, there's 10 
characteristics of history experts. And mm-hmm. um, that's a, I recommend this for every practicing historian to so, go in there and see if you recognize yourself. <laughs> <laughs> there's some interesting... Uh, well, what are some of them? Uh, well, so you mentioned sourcing. Yeah. Yeah. And wh- sourcing is one little part of one of the CHEs. Okay. And sourcing, by sourcing we mean... Examining a source of information to understand its context, mm-hmm. what it was written for, and um, and so that we can better understand how to read the document. Yeah. As I explained to my students, we're going to do this through a really laborious, lengthy sort of heuristic process, mm-hmm. and I can do this in about three seconds. Right. You know, that's just the, like, like as in baseball or anything, there's lots of things that you have to repeat slowly. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting in Sam's research that sourcing was the most common difference between how an expert historian thinks and how uh, a really smart but non-expert person yeah, thinks. I, the I think historians are all, uh, he, he tracked it with eye movement technology. Oh, really? Yeah, when a historian looks at something, yeah. their eyes start darting everywhere yeah. to try to figure out who wrote this. Yeah. And a, a very smart people, but not historically trained, almost never do that. Yeah, right. They just start reading as if the document existed um, on its own. Yeah, I, I, and and no one taught me the word sourcing until I no, read some, you know. I didn't. I learned it from Sam, I think. Yeah, and, and I but I did. I I can I know exactly those eye movements that you're describing, mm-hmm. and I don't know where it came from, but mm-hmm. I guess probably watching my professors is is where it came from, or, or just working in archives. Yeah. You know? There's some interesting omissions in this list of CHEs or characteristics of history experts. For example, I think most historians think that um, contingency is an important part of historical thinking, that we're always looking for contingent factors meaning and con- emphasizing it. Meaning contingency? Um, the unpredictability of what people do. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts. Cognitive psychologists have not yet noticed that that's a big feature of how we think when, when they're watching us think. I, I will say that a lot of historians are impatient with the idea of contingency. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that might be... Yeah. Uh, it may be just that, you know, maybe, they haven't successfully uh, worked up the right kind of experiments that could detect that. Mm-hmm. Or it could be that we don't actually do what many of us think we're doing. Yeah. And that certainly was the case in other disciplines like the natural sciences when they were the first to be studied by cognitive psychologists and they, they learned that scientists rarely think in the classic ways that they're supposed mm-hmm. to. Yeah, they're not as Baconian as, as they let on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, you know, the whole scientific method is, looks great in a, in a ninth grade biology textbook, but it, does, it is not an accurate picture of how scientists proceed usually. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other CHGs or, or, or oh, cognitive skills? Well, that, I hope I can remember some. Yeah, well, um, let's, talk, let's, let's stick to the ones that we know right. best, the connecting. What does connecting mean? Well, that's one we teach to undergraduates. It's mm-hmm. um, connecting is the discipline that, that um, requires you to look for relations between things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, sourcing usually involves a form of connecting. You want to find out who's talking and when they were saying this, and then see how far away or how close in time that was to the event in question. That's a form of making connection. Mm-hmm. You know. If, if a document is far removed in time from the event in question, it's probably probably uh, going to have to be read in a way that downgrades its reliability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today we got into the primary versus contemporary source mm-hmm. uh, question, mm-hmm. which you know, pri- 
evidence of a witness or you know bystander uh-huh. or participant versus someone who knew about it from a friend but who lived at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the uh, CHEs is corrupt is a form of connecting too. It's corroboration, mm-hmm. and that's how historians correct for the problem of unreliable sources mm-hmm. is you try to corroborate everything. Mm-hmm. So this is what cops do, detectives do. Yeah, so historical thinking is uh, uh, not unique Mm -mm. uh, in its totality to historians. We overlap quite a bit with what lots of other people do as well. I always like to say what doctors do when they're doing a diagnosis is really historical thinking. How long has this problem been going on? Well, that's what they they even call it, working up a patient history. Right, right? working up a patient history. Um, Questioning, another cognitive skill. Yeah. You know, when students come to college, at least here at Augustana, they, they, they wouldn't recognize a historical question if it bit them on the ankle. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I did after four years of undergraduate study. I have to say it's the, yeah. I think this is one of the harder things sometimes. But one that I have found in my research is we can successfully teach maybe better than almost any other skill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. My students mostly want to ask moral questions mm-hmm. of our topics. Like if we're if the subject is the dropping of the atomic bomb, eight out of ten students want to write a paper on was it right for the United States to drop the bomb? Which is a fine question. It's a great question. It's a wonderful question, and we do want to talk about it in a history class, but but not first. <laughs> so, right. so um, you know, we have to work hard to teach them what a historical question looks mm-hmm. like. And, so, what, what are it, some stock historical questions? So, what would be uh, some stock historical questions about the atomic bomb? Say, dropping the atomic bomb. I mean, what what distinguishes a good historical question from a bad historical question? Well, it's got to be generative, meaning leads to other questions. Usually, mm-hmm. I mean, it's all based on what you're going for. Mm-hmm. Some, I guess, some historical questions can be quite specific. Mm-hmm. What, when did this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, but really good historical questions are generative. They lead us to other questions they're they're difficult to answer why why questions are great that way mm-hmm. if i ask why harry truman dropped the atomic bomb well then i'm deep immediately mm-hmm. in the midst of a very fruitful um historical conflict mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um evidencing which i hate using as a verb but we we, we can do you think it. of a better word no i cannot that's i've tried inferencing uh yeah we could say inferencing but that that's that's like i don't want to confuse them at the beginning with inferencing sure. and it went to, I want to build into that. So evidencing will have to stay. Okay. Um, we, so we mean that's, that's evidencing is teaching in, or it's inferential reasoning. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the way I talk about it, as I say, you know, a feature of historical thinking is we link everything to evidence. Um, that's very different from the kind of stories people tell in literature. You know, they're not bound by a documentary record of evidence for their stories. That's not to say their stories aren't true. You know, it's a totally different <laughs> uh, conversation. There's, st- and in fact, I'm very sympathetic to those who argue that literature can sometimes be truer uh-huh. than nonfiction history. Uh, but they're not limited to evidence, and we are. Mm-hmm. Comprehension should have mentioned this earlier. That's just reading something to see if you got well, the point of it. Yeah. Yes. You're you're working from a old list a rubric or list of yeah. competencies that i use in my course that's not a uh, historical thinking skill to, to be able to understand what you read but mm-hmm. it's it's one and that with the general education history course you have to yeah measure for is can you 
can students just understand what they read? How about multiple perspectives? Is that a specifically historical? Yeah, the, that's one of the CHGs mm-hmm. that the cognitive psychologists have observed. Historians um, discipline themselves to not settle for the first solution to a problem that presents itself. Mm-hmm. So, so we look at evidence, we see how it answers a question, we come up with a, a solution or mm-hmm. answer the question, mm-hmm. and then we keep going. We look for a different answer. Mm-hmm. We consult the conversation, the great mm-hmm. conversation, see how other people have answered similar questions. Yeah. And so we spend multiple perspectives against each other, you know, iron sharpening iron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people are very frustrated if they ask a historian for, say, a book on the Crusades. Uh-huh. And I will yeah. probably give a minimum of three books. On the All Crusades. with a different point of view. With, and they yeah. will have a different point of view. But that, that is an example of the way that we think automatically. Yeah. And that's not, of course, unique to historians no. either. You know, that old no. joke about economists. If you have three economists in a room, you're going to have four answers. Right. But, I, want, I, want a, I want one-handed economists, <laughs> as Harry Truman said. <laughs> um, and uh, Humility. Yeah, that's one I feel uh, strongly about, and uh, was glad to see that the cognitive psychologist noticed it oh, as really? well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I call it humility. Others call it, you know, recognizing that there are limits to what you know. Mm-hmm. But it's it's this Socratic idea that uh, he does not know, but thinks that he knows. I don't know, and know that I don't know. So I'm 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 ahead of him. Yeah. Um, apparently, historians are. Um, more likely than some others to just to, to, to not turn a blind eye to gaps in what they know or, or in, in, in our knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Um, we, in, in fact, on the contrary, you know, a mark of a very uh, plausible story is that it admits its shortcomings mm-hmm. and, and its insufficiencies mm-hmm. and is, is upfront about what questions still remain. Mm-hmm. So these are the intellectual habits of historical thinking. The cognitive habits. The cognitive yeah. habits, yeah. yeah. Um, that's not the only way of thinking about history. Um, you, you and I have been going, this is this is the cognitive way right. of thinking about history. I have to emphasize that. Uh-huh. Or maybe in the future uh, episodes, we'll do some of the different other ways of thinking. Such, uh, a, such as the storytelling way. Storytelling way, right. Just by being a storyteller. Um, we began with that. And then we moved into cognitive habits. Right. The, the two, no, I think, I'm glad you said that. It's important to recognize that the cognitive approach to, to historical thinking is not the only approach. Mm-hmm. But we began with storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two aren't. The two are not divorced. They can go together. Right. Yeah. Um, so, for, and as we're just uh, wrapping up here, um, is there any? What would be the? What would be the one thing that you would hope that people would remember about? history the takeaway the 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 view of history what is the most what's the most important misconception that has to change about history well i would say that there's one story Mm -hmm. that's we can't call that a misconception when the way people are taught in school actually teaches people to believe there's one story that you know when you have one textbook that's the story of the past and naturally, people are going to conclude that history is a pretty cut and dried recital of an authoritative story. So we can't call that a misconception. <laughs> Teachers are teaching that when they use one textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I would say that's our challenge as as historians to lead people to a more sophisticated and accurate view and more exciting and interesting mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. 
that, that history is a mystery, which isn't to say that anything goes, but it is to say that there's almost always going to be more than one acceptable way to tell an account about something. And, and history becomes an argument, a really, really interesting argument that elevates our conversations and our thinking. My guest today has been Lyndall Calder, my colleague here at the Department of History in Augustana College. Lyndall, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for asking me, Al. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leimbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps the WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.